This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the Year Ahead Summit and earlier... It's an annual event. Now, Jim Coulter giving us a sense, he's the co-CEO of TPG, of what he told his investors to think about for 2020. He had some very specific themes. One of them is about corporate governance and the era of and. Check it out. So this is one of the most important questions of the year ahead and probably the decade ahead. We have trillions of dollars of assets in these entities called corporations. And suddenly we're calling into question their purpose what they should and can do. And the Business Roundtable came out in a much talked about idea of saying that uh, shareholders are not the only thing, and in fact, not even the prime thing that people should be worrying about. And Jack Welsh, uh, I love this quote, you know, the dumbest idea ever. He was kind of the, the leader of shareholder value, now gone the other way. And so we bear the risk of going guardrail to guardrail, like we always do in business, Jason, where it was all profits, now it's all not profits. I think that we have to go through the same process that we just did in uh, science uh, over centuries, is we have to begin to live in a era of and. Of course you have to have profits or you can't sustain yourself. And of course you have to take care of your broader ecosystem. We just have to get our head around how to execute that. I've been fascinated by this debate because my entire career has been about governance in a world of ant. So one of the things that really isn't understood, and there's so much that's not understood about private equity, is we are essentially, at our core, a governance system. And I have, for 25 years, been co-running one of the largest governance laboratories in the world. Hundreds of companies, hundreds of board seats through the most difficult times, CEO changes, IPOs, transactions of all sorts. We've got it right, we've got it wrong, but we've learned a ton. And our world has always been about and. Why? Because we're long-term investors, and it's been totally clear, even Friedman would agree, that over the long term, you have to take care of your customers or you're not going to uh, survive. And our investors have a long time ago asked us to be at the forefront of ESG. So we report on ESG, we train our boards on ESG. And quite frankly, our business is a little more personal. And personally, I have always thought it's the right thing to run a business for and. It's just the right thing to do. So I've been fascinated as I've watched the rest of the market. So private equity is about 3% of the global equity capital markets. Now the other 97% of the market is coming our way into the world of and. And I, I had our teams think about this. It turns out there's a massive industry of governance that talking about how corporations are supposed, to, uh, uh, are supposed to conduct themselves. And you can do it all over the world. You can have you know, scintillating things about board minutes. These are lawyers, sessions taught by lawyers. In fact, uh, a really interesting paper, and Jason, you should get this. It just came out a few weeks ago from Stanford's Rock Center for Corporate Governance. And, and stop for a second and read these quotes. These are people who are governance specialists. They've gone and looked at the field, and what they say is that the concepts are loosely defined and poorly understood. We do not have, after decades of research, an understanding of what makes an effective governance system. 
And we often misstate the idea of having a staggered board, not having a staggered board, splitting chairmanship. These are just structures. They are not good governance. It would be like saying that if you go on a football field with a formation that you're going to win the game. No, you have to actually play the game. They allow good governance. They are not good governance in themselves. So there's a fundamental break in our understanding of corporate governance at a time we're going to add additional complexity into it. So I'm beginning to speak about this for the first time. It's the first time I've spoke publicly about this because although I've been running the largest governance laboratory, one of the largest governance laboratories out there, uh, we have never been asked to speak at any of those conferences. Uh, I think in finance, there is a place for the theoreticians and there's a place for the practic practical. And uh, you have to balance the two. So let me give you a few comments on the world of AND with the idea of a practitioner's viewpoint entering the discussion. So first of all, uh, four things we have to fix. Shareholder engagement, board dynamics, measurement, and attitude. Shareholder dynamics, somehow there's become a crisis in shareholder involvement in governance. We understand that in a political system, if one person doesn't vote, maybe it doesn't change the system, but if everyone stops participating, the system is gonna break down. That's what's happening in corporate governance. Two things are happening, people are holding shares less, so they are treating the companies like things they're renting, not things they own. And we're seeing the growth of ETFs, which essentially feel a step farther from governance. And so we have a series of really outstanding companies that I respect much that are now having an increasing voice in governance. And so if you think about Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock running the ETF marketplace, this is $15 trillion of investment with 75 people responsible for the governance functions there. Now, why does that feel low to us? It feels low to us because we manage $60 billion of private equity and we have 160 people on boards actually active in governance. Yes, it's a different model, but 400 times less capital investment. But I feel for State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock because they're under massive pressure to decrease their costs. And at the end of the day, the people that invest in these ETFs have to decide whether they want good governance. One last thing about this governance structure. Um, we went into LinkedIn and we found as many of the people at, at these uh, robust institutions that are in the governance business. I think we found 25 or so of the leaders. And what we found is we couldn't find a single board that any of them had sat on. Boards have to change how they operate. I've been involved in hundreds of boards. I've sat on 42 uh, major boards myself. And I think it's, it's not that the people on corporate boards are wrong. It's that the boards themselves act the wrong ways. And that is Jim Coulter. Well, they take care of business every day, doing a lot of research on all of the companies that are out there, the publicly held companies. David Dwyer is Bloomberg Intelligence Global Director of Research. He gave a presentation at the Year Ahead conference here at uh, Bloomberg headquarters. He took a look at the themes to watch in 2020. Um, he joins us now, right here on site uh, at Bloomberg headquarters. Tell us a little bit about how you guys approached kind of the themes idea of what to watch out for next year. So it started with, uh, for several years, we've identified 50 companies to watch uh, in the I kept wanting year. to say that, yes. 50 companies. 50 companies to watch. <laughs> uh, by the way, they're not all positive. It, it sometimes they're to watch for negative reasons. Um, but we, uh, we just rolled out the Bloomberg Business Week magazine a couple weeks ago with these 50 companies mm -hmm. to watch. Uh, and the 300 analysts that we have spent a lot of time identifying these 50 companies. And part of the fun of the effort 
was to really identify what themes you really have to pay attention to in 2020. And we identified almost 20 themes uh, that all these companies were, were being uh, impacted by in 2020. And these are major themes that investors have to be looking at uh, going forward into 2020 as they're thinking about their in investment ideas. So give us an example. I have to think one of them is trade, U.S., China, all of that, because every you single think? CEO and investor we talk to is obsessed with it. But <laughs> you guys are charged with the data and the analysis. What does that look like thematically through your lens? Well, it, it, trade is just so fascinating. And uh, it's, it's it's so complex and the intricacies and all the companies going up and down the supply chain are, are really, really significant. And you know, one of the things, the observations we've made in the last couple of weeks as we've prepared for this presentation is, you know, you hear a lot of headline news about soybeans, for instance, mm -hmm. agricultural experts and exports. And of course, that is a big deal in the political environment in the United States. But, you know, what we really came down to understanding is this trade war is all about technology. Mm. Uh, it. You know, we looked at all the uh, in, in China put out a few years ago their their made in China by 2025 agenda and it was not shoes it was not clothes it was not toys or furniture right. it was like robotics and power systems AI. and high speed rail systems AI you know particularly interesting is our healthcare team noticed that it was biotech hmm. and they're actually becoming a significant player in biotech. Who would think? I mean, that, that wasn't something that was ever viewed as something that China would excel in. But technology is really what this sort of trade war is all about. And the implications of this trade war along the entire supply chain of technology is quite significant. That's fascinating, though, because as you lay that out, as China has a mission to be leaders in these much more high-tech areas or more sophisticated areas of our market, I mean, they're going to be winners and losers as a result, right? So even if there's some dominant players, whether it's a U.S. company or a European company, we're going to start to see things change potentially. Oh, it's, it's really significant. And a lot of the analysts that we've had talking over the course of the day are talking about exactly those issues that you bring up, uh, Carol. The, uh, you know, one of the things I think you're seeing, Mandeep Singh, who's on quite often, mm -hmm. talks about is the convergence of technology. And, and we look at cloud is transforming, uh, really, the, the world uh, and making uh, technology so much e less expensive to bring forward. Uh, and that's creating the gig economy. And then mm -hmm. you've got 5G overlaying that. And that's just going to speed up everything right. and dramatically change how that can, can actually impact industries. Um, and the trade war is significant in this area. It's really changing the way people are thinking about approaching these products. Well, and it's interesting, too, and Jim Coulter brought this up under the guise of what he coins the splinter net, which is this decoupling of China and the U.S., which we've talked a lot mm -hmm. about. That has unbelievable implications in both countries, but also for the globe as well. I would imagine that plays through your research as well, well right? Well, absolutely, Jason. And, and what, what we noticed, if you want to take a supply chain in telecom, for instance, and we could talk about all levels, and if you take a look at British Telecom uh, versus AT&T, which were two of the companies we had on, on this list, uh, British Telecom is very dependent on Huawei technology, okay? <laughs> and that is really going to slow down their build-out of 5G in Europe. Right. Uh, and to keep in mind, 
Europe is sort of behind on the whole 5G emergence anyway, so this makes it even that more troublesome. So absolutely, this is causing a problem for that, whereas the U.S. has not been as dependent on Huawei technology, so AT&T, Sprint Mobile is not going to see these same issues. But it goes beyond just that high level. Yeah. It also goes all the way down through the supply chain. Well, yeah. and something like 5G, whether it's a country or a company, but countries in particular, they can be, set, if they have more advancements, they'll be setting the standards. Yeah. And That's it right. can make things very interesting going forward. All right. Great stuff, David. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. David you, Dwyer, Jason. Global Director of Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. 1,900 companies in industries across the spectrum that they are looking at. Fantastic pre presentation today, really helping us think about what's ahead in 2020. And earlier, I caught up with Jonathan Nelson. He is, of course, the CEO of Providence Equity, very well known in the media space, but also in the space of IRL, you mm -hmm. know, real life, that whole thing, Carol. <laughs> Here's what he had to say about how streaming and live events fit in. Yeah. You know, we were talking a little bit about backstage. My family, at least, hasn't gone full streaming because of sports yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. You have invested pretty heavily in live experiences and specifically in sports. So what does that investment case look like in this broader context? Yeah, so it's a great question. As, as I sit here, there are th three wild cards in streaming and one of them has to do with sports. The wild cards are sports rights and specifically the NFL, which I don't hear much in the conversation. If you're trying to figure out where streaming is going, and we'll talk, we, we're engaged in lots of live events mm -hmm. and investments, uh, but in, in, into the rubric of television and whatever device actually, and streaming, key point to watch out for is what happens to the NFL rights. Uh, the, the model that we have, all of us have grown up with um, well, at least over the last 20 years, uh, has been extended, supported by sports. Right. And ESPN's top of the list. And major networks have heavily invested. And just to give you a sense, in television, 70% of the top 100 shows are NFL games. Wow. Think about that. Um, and the first... The, the first um, uh, event that will come up uh, and it won't be dispositive, but it'll be significant, will be DirecTV. I believe the uh, league has the right to opt out of that. Mm -hmm. At the end of this football season, so next year, early next year, maybe Direct keeps it. I'm not privy to what they'll do. Um, but where it goes will be very interesting. If it stays with Direct or it moves to, especially if it moves not to uh, uh, one of the big networks, who's already got a contract, yeah. but a tech company. And even more important will be 21-22 when NBC, CBS, and ESPN contracts are up. And maybe then, by then ABC is back in the game, literally. Uh, what happens to those? Now, historically, the NFL has been smartly experimenting uh, with different uh, platforms, non-traditional. Yeah, they've done the little Amazon, right? Yes, Including. Amazon and before that Twitter. And I'm not expecting them uh, to wholesale move away from uh, the big broadcasters. But between where we are now and some point down the road, yeah. all of that will happen. So that's a tipping point for And that's all about live. 
Right. All about live. To keep going with your live question. Yeah. So we, uh, music's a good example. Uh, we invested in Warner Music years ago. It was a successful investment. But we could see in the catbird seat how much of the revenue of the music industry was leaving the labels. Thank you, Apple, yeah. by the way, um, which really forced that issue. But it was probably inevitable anyway. And it moved to uh, touring. Uh, and so we did as investors. We said we have to focus not on the, the, the equivalent for uh, music, which is still very important. Consumption is high, but the dollars are flowing in you know, different streams. And we moved to um, uh, live concerts. So we have the fastest growing live concert uh, company in Europe, where we're doing a roll-up under the Superstruck name. We've invested in Europe and in the U.S., with all the engineering design infrastructure that is behind the scenes for music festivals, a company called Tate, which has tapped right into the, um, the you know, the most important part of music consumption mm -hmm. right now, which is touring. Uh, so those are examples. Uh, we're well, also doing it actually right here in New York and in Europe uh, with Ambassador Theater Group which is live theater. Right. Uh, the best IP, because it's not ours, we just produce it. Yeah. And provide all the uh, uh, technical and, and um, uh, physical uh, support you need. You need real theaters. And, and it's done incredibly well. Well, and it's pretty easy to connect those investments in live theater and in music to your success with Iron Man, as a for instance, in terms of live experience, in terms of sort of almost the opposite to some extent of the streaming wars is people actually, God forbid, getting out and doing stuff instead of, you know, Netflix and chill. Yeah, no, it's a funny world we live in. It's... Um, it's one of extremes. I mean, we see that in politics, yes. uh, especially this season. It'll be even more so a year from now. Uh, but we say it, you're either on the couch or you're running a triathlon. You're competing in a right. triathlon. Right. How is that possible? Both are good it's businesses. Like, uh, yes. Yeah, we try and satisfy both needs. Right. <laughs> uh, Iron Man was interesting. Uh, we were uh, scouring the landscape for underappreciated uh, sports uh, and we found Iron Man. First, we were shocked that someone actually owned it. Yeah. And we bought it and transformed the business. They owned very few, less than 10 races, and took that to 100 around the world as opposed to licensing it out, improved it, the, the competitors' experience, the operations. You know, if you do something 100 times a year, you should right. be much better than the group that does it once. Yeah. And that is Jonathan Nelson. He is the CEO of Providence Equity. One of the industries we looked at at the year ahead was retail and malls specifically. And we had the perfect duo to get into this because they were together. Dynamic duo. They were dynamic. Macy's chairman and CEO Jeff Gannett and Simon Property Group chairman and CEO David Simon. They sat down with you and me and they talked about what's going on in the mall community. And, you know, we kicked it off by saying our mall's dead. Uh, they talked about that and they also talked about the health of the consumers. Check this out. So, Jeff, every day on our show, I feel like we're hearing these conflicting reports of consumers great, consumers enthusiastic, consumers spending money. We're going into a great holiday season. Businesses, however, are a little hesitant. CapEx is down. 
What do you see across your customer in terms of their mood and their optimism or caution right now? I think the customer, it's not as good as it was a year ago, but it's still a very good climate for the consumer to consume. And so I think retail is relatively healthy. And what I'd say about the customer journey is it's not monolithic. Yeah. You know, they don't, you don't design a store with one journey in mind. You know, I think any, any retailer out there is getting increasingly the journey of, of the customers really is really pushing us on the balanced investment. So we're all investing in Omnichannel. We're all investing in mobile. We're all investing in brick and mortar because that circle, that journey is getting tighter and tighter. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important when a customer, when they come into a store, that journey may say, hey, I want to come in. I just bought something when I was on the couch last night. It's being delivered to that building. I want to get in and out within two minutes. That same customer may be back to you the next week and they're planning a wedding or they're, they're with their daughter and she's, uh, she's going to prom and she wants a stylist to help her with the dress, with the makeup, with the accessories. So you've got to, everything has, to, our, our consumer guides us on all this and you've got to make sure that you're, the journey that we're on between all of our balanced investment is in line. And so what we look at in our stores is what's the most convenient way for her to get in and get out? Where are the experiences that we are going to invest in? Which are the ones that are not value add? We make those decisions at a local level. Um, I think every retailer has their gig, but that's what we're thinking about. You said her. Is it mostly her? It's mostly her. About 70% of the decisions are either for her or being made by her. Yeah. But I got to tell you, you know, our business is particularly good with the male customer. Mm. And, you know, maybe we, sh we should play with our pronouns here. Okay. Right. I was just curious. What for him or her, what did you think would work that didn't? Whether it was experiential or an upgrade that, that you made or a service that maybe yeah. just didn't pan out the way you thought it would? I think there's a number of them. I mean, we're learning all the time. So we're testing things and then based on what we learned from those tests that we're then iterating it and then we scale from there. So, you know, I, I, I could point to many concepts that started out a particular way that we ended sure. up killing and others that started out and have morphed into something different. Very rarely do we get it right from the moment we do it. And I think the mark of any great retailer is one that is experimenting much faster than ever before. You're not doing it in a test tube and then to, to, you're like launching something fully formed. The faster you can get in front of the customer, they'll tell you every time. And you can do that online with concepts. You can do it in a store with experiences. What is the role of online in all of this? We Huge. know, yeah. But right. how do you complement then your brick and mortar? What's, oh, the, it, what's the best strategies? Yeah, what I'd say on Omnichannel is that you know we have more content or we have no, more traffic that's coming through mobile than any other channel right now. Um, and but she's browsing, she's checking prices, she's going to the influencer, she's uh, she's transacting. You know, so when you look at mobile, we had a billion dollars in sales last year. We're up 50% on that between the Bloomingdale's and the Macy's platform. She's using it to navigate in a store. She's checking out in a store. So a digital is, it enables brick and mortar to be much healthier. And brick and mortar seeds digital activity. Right. They, they're, they're so intricately linked. Right. And any retailer that doesn't have brick and mortar will. Um, and any pure, so any pure play is either doing partnerships with brick and mortar or they're developing their own stores and vice versa. All right, we've only got about 90 seconds left. David, I want to start with you. Biggest single challenge as you look at the year ahead for your company and for you. Look, I think it's just the continuation of reclaiming uh, real estate that we can do much better with. So, um, and Sears is a great example. We don't own all the real estate and what we're, we're focused on is you know how to get that on econo on economic terms mm -hmm. where we can invest and make money and um, um, and and that's and that's ultimately going to pay a lot of benefits for the consumer 
and the communities. One of the things that's really important for uh, the communities to know is that we are the largest taxpayer in the communities. Um, and we generate enormous sales taxes for our communities. So if you take Roosevelt Field, between our sales tax and our real estate tax mm -hmm. that we generate from that facility, you're, you know, you're talking roughly uh, 130 to 40 million dollars for that community. And I think, you know, a warehouse that sells online goods, it's, and may, let's argue that it's the same stuff more or less, doesn't do that. They, they don't do that. And I think it's important for us to get the story out how important mm. we are to the community in terms of uh, viability of that community teachers, firemen, et cetera. And that's, and that's a story that we hope to tell better. That's a great point. Jeff, your biggest challenge as you look at 2020? Balancing growth. So both top and bottom line growth. So we've been very public about our pursuit of that. You know, what I know is that America loves to shop. And uh, when you think about the Macy's and the Bloomingdale's brand, they come to us for fashion. So that's our wheelhouse and how we can continue to show top line growth, but also bottom line growth is what we're hotly pursuing. So is the mall dead? No, man. <laughs> right. Come shopping with us and we'll show you what. All right. Some pretty vehement denials about the demise of the mall from a couple people who are in the business of malls, admittedly. Uh, that is Jeff Gannett, the CEO of Macy's, and David Simon, the CEO of Simon Property Group. We are awaiting the start of Carol's conversation. Speaking of Carol Master, my co-host, she is upstairs at the year ahead. She is going to be talking in just a few minutes with the CEO of Curaleaf, that's Joseph Lusardi, uh, obviously a leading voice in the cannabis industry. That has been one of the mega trends here in 2019 and probably will be, safe to say it will be, in 2020 as different states across the United States start to figure out what they're going to do in terms of legalizing marijuana, both from a medical and a recreational perspective. And Carol Masser is coming to the stage right now. Uh, her conversation with the CEO of Cureleaf, that's Joseph Lasardi. Let's head up there now. And um, I thought I would share it with everyone. If you guys want to come out, we kind of spring this on you. Um, there's some brownies for everyone. <laughs> now, don't get, don't get worried or don't get disappointed, they're not Cureleaf brownies. <laughs> they're, they're just regular brownies. So enjoy nice as touch. we get ready. <laughs> um, we thought we'd have some fun with you. Um, let's talk about this industry, Joe, because enjoy the brownies as we talk. Um, I came across some numbers that talked about the estimates of the medical and recreational marijuana industry. Cowan says that by 2030, the U.S. cannabis industry will be worth over $75 billion. Another report suggested that the, at the current growth rate, more cannabis will be sold in 2030 than in soda drinks. And Morningstar said it expects U.S. recreational cannabis sales to grow at a 25% compound annual growth rate. I mean, really significant numbers. There's a lot of optimism out there. Uh, you don't necessarily see it in the share prices anymore. Mm -hmm. What's the reality of what's going on in your industry? I think the reality is, you know, that's not hypothetical. We believe that today cannabis is a 75 to $100 billion industry. But importantly, most of it is served by the black market. Mm 
So less than 10% of the transactions in cannabis last year were done through regulated stores like Curaleaf. And so that's what's exciting is we're not trying to tell you that this is an industry that needs to be created. It's already there. Right. What we need is regulated to markets to transfer out of the black market into the regulated. And that's just what Curaleaf is doing. So that's why we have great optimism in the future of our business and the industry, frankly. Well, you talk about then, like, let's get to the regulatory side of things. Is it taking a lot longer than you anticipated? I mean, progress is not fast and it's not linear. And so, um, you know, it depends on whose timetable. But what I would suggest is that 33 states now have medical marijuana mm -hmm. laws. 10 states have adult use laws. And that's been tremendous progress over the last couple of years. The dialogue is very vocal about adult use cannabis up and down the East Coast and markets like New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. So I think it's reasonable to assume that given the social attitudes around cannabis, more states will enact adult use programs and more people will be able to buy cannabis in regulated, controlled environments. Right. And you just opened in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. In fact, yesterday we opened our first adult use store on the East Coast. And so that's a big transition for Cureleaf because we started out as a medical business. What right. we recognized many years ago was that millions of Americans were self-medicating with cannabis um, for very serious diseases, including cancer and epilepsy and a lot of other horrible conditions. And so we really entered this space to help people that were sick. Um, but what's happened over time is that, as I said, the, the social attitudes towards cannabis keep changing. It's becoming more mainstream. Right. And as states like Massachusetts adopt adult use programs, the medical operators are there. They have regulated programs, and they're the first ones to address that population. What's going to be the biggest part of the market? Because I certainly have CBD products. <clears throat> I have a lot of companies that keep coming in and saying, you know, try these, whether they're creams and lotions. There's that there's medical, there's recreational. How does the market play out ultimately? Is it a little bit of all that or what? It's all of that. The way we think about it is that, you know, if you think about cannabis for, for medical people, you know, the most vulnerable, sickest people in our population, cancer patients, epileptics, et cetera, use cannabis and get great benefit. Right. But that's ultimately a narrow part of the population, right? There are only so many people that are that sick. But then there's also part of the population that uses cannabis for, you know, called the euphoric element or the recreational aspect. And maybe people want to replace Chardonnay, you know, with cannabis or scotch. Right. And that's another segment. But when it, the way I think about it is actually the biggest opportunity is cannabis as, as an adult use wellness product. So you point out CBD. There are literally millions of Americans now using CBD across the country for health benefits. Right. Cannabinoids have the ability to, to deliver amazing health benefits. One of the main reasons why people actually go into an adult use store to buy cannabis is to sleep. That's the number one condition is sleep. I don't consider sleep a recreational activity. I consider that a life activity. And so right. cannabis is going to become a wellness product that people will use all around the country for things like sleep, anxiety, maybe low-grade pain. And it, I really believe that's the biggest opportunity. Well, and I want to come back to that. I want to talk a little bit more about safety because there was an interesting survey that we found that um, Politico and Harvard's uh, School of Public Health said this past week that Americans now think marijuana is much less harmful than alcohol, tobacco, or cigarettes. Just one in five Americans believe marijuana is very harmful to people who use it. It's interesting. Does that surprise you? Not even a little bit. Um, Why? Because I think that people are realizing that, you know, people are reconnecting with nature and the food that they eat. And cannabis is a natural substance. It's been used for thousands of years. And I think people recognize that it has a legitimate place in our society. Um, and, and, and frankly, people use cannabis for a variety of reasons, as you point out. And so I think that trend will continue and more and more people will consider cannabis mainstream as more states adopt adult use programs. So I want to talk cannabis and vaping because that certainly has been a big issue. And I know you and I talk, uh, talked about this um, earlier. We've got a polling question and I want to see what everybody thinks. So pull out your phones, if you would, um, go into the browser and go to live polling. The recent vaping backlash is 
one, overdue, two, overdone, about right. And I'm curious what everybody thinks. And so we'll wait for this to kind of come in. About right. The health concerns, as, as everybody continues to vote, so about right is what everybody thinks. The health concerns over vaping and the use and, and with CBD. I'm just curious, and marijuana, does that, is that going to slow down your business? Well, what kind I, of problems does that create? I think it's really important to unpack vaping. And, and Sorry, I'll take a minute here, but I think it's really no, important no, no, to I'm, unpack vaping, nicotine vaping, and cannabis, right? So nicotine vaping, if you look at a company like Juul, they created a form factor and a product that was very attractive to people and, frankly, a lot of teenagers. And they had flavor profiles that were attractive to teenagers. And so now we have a lot of people that are reasonably upset that we have a lot of underage people, teenagers, vaping highly addictive nicotine cartridges. And I understand that. Let's also remind ourselves that almost half a million people die a year from cigarettes. So I would suggest that vaping has its rightful place in our society and possibly is a better alternative than smoking. That's one fact, right? And that's why there's a big pushback on vaping because people are upset. What's happened recently is that people are showing up in hospitals with acute lung illnesses. Mm -hmm largely driven by black market cannabis. Why? Because cannabis is now mainstream. People want to use cannabis, but they can't get it through a regulated safe source. A lot of these cases are happening in states that don't have regulated cannabis, period. So it's very clearly coming from the black market. And that's really the issue. We embrace regulation. We want regulated programs. Our, our biggest competitor is the black market. It's the drug dealer because he doesn't care what's in his products. He doesn't have to go through safety standards. He only cares about you getting high and giving him money. So that's, that's how we think about the industry. And I think you have to put it in that context to understand why we are trying to lead a world where cannabis is accepted, regulated, and safe. So let's go back to the regulated piece. What are the conversations you're having in Washington? Because I agree, even with CBD products, I don't know how everybody feels, but I want to know because there's different substances or different levels, and I need to know what it is that I'm using. So where do we start to get those regulatory pieces? What are the conversations that you're having? I mean, we're working, in fact, I'll be in D.C. next week. We're working all the time in D.C. to create awareness that Americans want to use these products full stop, and they can deliver health benefits. And so the conflict between the federal and state law has to be resolved. I mean, there are 33 states with medical programs that's not sustainable. And so, right. And there's it's kind a lot of piecemeal, of right, at this yeah, point. Yeah, it is piecemeal. So I, but I think the federal government does need to step in. The FDA does need to step in, provide comprehensive regulations for the country so people can be ensured that they're using but safe products. But is that going to happen anytime soon? I mean, I hope so. We're pushing for that. We want a regulated, safe industry. And so that's what we're lobbying very hard to get. I mean, there's a, there's a bill that's being considered, which is called the States Act, which would let states make their own policy and would likely create some room for the federal government to come in and regulate and create standards like they do in every other part of our right. lives. Does it get done in a year? I mean, look at this political climate, this legislative climate. It's bad business to predict what happens in Washington, D.C., for sure. Um, so I, I'm not, I don't really know, but I, we're going to work hard to try to get, get a uh, law that recognizes states' rights to have cannabis laws. But does it hold back the growth until we get something like that? Ironically, no. I mean, hmm. that's, the, that's the thing is that the states don't seem to care that the federal government thinks you know, marijuana is a Schedule One drug with no medicinal value. 33 states have enacted medical programs, and more will do so at the ballot box next year. That's the amazing thing about cannabis laws around the country is that they have, they, they have very rarely been done by the legislature. The vast majority of cannabis laws is because people show up to the ballot box and vote for cannabis. And I think that progression will continue. I mean, states like Utah, Oklahoma, not just, you know, blue states, states all over the country now are enacting cannabis laws because people recognize that citizens 
citizens should be able to use these products. I want to ask you about your acquisition of Select, right? Because this is a bet on vaping, correct? An well, adult user. It's a bet on the number one adult use brand in the country. They're, they're more than a vape company. They're primarily a vape company, but they sell a gummy, they sell a tincture. And what's exciting about our platform is that because cannabis is a closed loop, it's a state-by-state -state program, cannabis can't cross state lines, there's really only one company in the country that looks like Cureleaf, Cureleaf, and we have a 19-state coast-to-coast platform right. when we close our transaction with Grassroots. And so we'll be able to take the best adult-use brand on the West Coast and make it a national brand, and that's really exciting for us. But tell us about Select, because it was a, almost a, a billion-dollar purchase, right? But you guys have amended the terms recently, because you we said did. kind of the market conditions changed. Is it because you don't think it's going to be as lucrative or what's going on? No, I mean, you know, when we did the deal, it was a share exchange. It was for 95 million shares. We felt in light of the vape crisis and market conditions, it was more appropriate to de-risk, frankly, the, the uh, investment, make the base consideration 40 million shares left and, and let them earn their way to that consideration. It's our job and theirs to let them do that. I'll be delighted when they achieve it. I right. think they will. And so, um, but in this risk environment, we thought it was prudent to, to scale back the initial consideration. I have another polling question for everyone, and, and if you could uh, take out your phones again. The smart cannabis money in 2020 will be in, and I'm curious, Joe, what you have to think about this, consumer products, cultivation, distribution, or ancillary, ancillary or ecosystem, so real estate, transportation, kind of all the other things that surround it, um, distribution. What do you think? Well, it's interesting. Again, cannabis is, it, because of the state-by-state -state framework, it's a closed loop. Cannabis can't cross state lines right now. So a company like Curely, for example, in Florida, we have 26 stores. We have to be vertical, meaning we have to cultivate, manufacture, and, in every and retail in every single state. And so what we're doing is investing in states like on the East Coast primarily that are closed loop and building infrastructure all up and down the value chain so we can deliver products to our stores that are Curaleaf products and customers can use and trust and rely on to help them with their conditions. So that's where you'll continue to invest? Yeah, all across the whole value chain for right now. I mean, you can imagine in a very, very far out state that cultivation will be commoditized, but we believe that's a long way off. Um, I'm also curious about the M&A environment. Do you anticipate even more consolidation within the industry? How do you see it playing out? Are there more acquisitions that you guys would like to take? Yeah, I think consolidation is, is possible, but it, it's so early days. It's, it's really the first inning of the industry. I mean, this is the end of prohibition, and a lot is going to happen. I think what's important for a company like Cureleaf is to build the platform so we can get our products in the hands of millions of consumers, and they can interact with our brand and trust and rely on it for their daily lives. And so that's what we're focused on. Um, you know, we're in 19 of the 20 biggest cannabis states in the country. So, you know, we're not in 33. We, we potentially will be there someday. So there's a lot of work to do ahead. Um, I do wonder, too, about, like, let's take a, a state like New York, because it's interesting. You know, you've got a big presence, um, but, you know, not big sales yet, right? Right. So what do you, so what's the conversations you're having with kind of the tri-state area and the governors? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's super interesting. Again, this is- Because they've been talking to one another, right? They have been, and this is a state-by-state -state framework. So a program like New Jersey is running laps around New York because they're more progressive. They allow things like flower, and you're seeing thousands of patients enter the program, you know, every, every month, frankly. Uh, in New York, it's a very, it's a very controlled program with limited products, limited form factors. And because of that, people aren't embracing the program the same way they are. For example, in Florida, Florida is the fastest growing cannabis market in the country. There's almost 300,000 people now that use cannabis in a regulated way in Florida, up from zero two years ago. Wow. So if the government is behind it and they have progressive regulations, the programs really take off. What keeps you up at night with all Everything. of this? Everything. <laughs>
It's a good thing then you run the company. <laughs> Everything. I mean, it's just it's a challenging industry because it's a state by state framework. Like I said, you have to be vertical, and so a lot of the things that aren't really sexy but make the company greater daily execution. We have to grow a plant. We have to turn it into a product, retail it, distribute it. I mean, a lot of those things are just are, are hard work. Well, you know, you talk about your time in Washington, and I do wonder. We have a constant. You know, when does the federal government? as a whole, kind of rule, you know, kind of say, okay, we're good with this. Yeah, I mean, if Bernie Sanders is the president, <laughs> maybe sooner than later, but, um, you know. I mean, it, do you have any indication of when the, this might happen? You know, I, I think it will happen like all things, you know, it, it'll progress over time, right? I think there will be a continual, um, you know, relaxation of rules. I think I think the first thing that will likely happen is the, the SAFE Act, which will allow companies like CureLeaf to use national banks. Uh, right now, we use state chartered banks. Right. I think then you'll probably see a bill called the States Act, which allows states to make their own cannabis policies. And then probably in, in, in a far out scenario, maybe five years or, or longer from now, you'll be a, you'll see a full federal rescheduling. But I mean, I'll but remind you. A year, two years? No, three years? not not full federal. I don't believe so. I mean, I'll really? remind you that that 17 states don't have programs, right? right. And so, you know, the, the, those citizens are still coming to their views around cannabis, and um, you know, progress isn't going to be faster. It's going to take time, but you know, we're we're persistent. So when we tweeted that you and I were going to be having this conversation, um, somebody tweeted like, "Well, great, maybe something can be done with this, the share price." <laughs> Talk to us about the investment community, sure, and what you're hearing from them, because yeah. you know, for a while. I feel like, you know, last year, go back about 12 months, I mean, we couldn't, the industry couldn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I was really smart in May, and now I'm stupid. Then. I don't know how that works. But. No, but, right? I mean, you look, the share prices have been under a lot of pressure. They have I think been. everybody's like, okay, now what? You know, we, we've all been enthusiastic, but now we're, we're waiting for kind of the payoff. Yep. I think, way. you know, look, these are emerging markets. I would just remind people that we're playing a long game here. This is the first inning of the cannabis industry. It's going to be a long progression to develop, you know, these companies. But the reality is there was a lot of, I would say, enthusiasm around Canadian stocks. Absolutely. Frankly, because the federal government of Canada put a program together and they haven't really delivered on their promise. And so I think, you know, investors are now looking very skeptically around about cannabis in general and wanting to see companies actually deliver on their promises. We're going to report our numbers on November 19th. I've never felt better about our business. And I'm, you know, I'm excited about the future of Curaleaf for sure. Um, I want to go back to vaping for a minute because I think there's some talk that, you know, California, I know we kind of went through it, but, I, you know, I think people are really worried. They should be. They should be. Yeah, absolutely. But you, I mean, don't, you don't think it'll slow down your business? What, what I would suggest is that you should probably not buy a vape pen from the guy in the alley. You should probably buy a vape pen from a store with a label on it that's been tested by a lab. Um, you know, they, they, um, NBC did a study. They bought 10 vape pens from the legal stores Five. and 10 from the illicit market. All 10 legal vapes passed. All 10 illegal vapes failed had things in them like pesticides, vitamin E, horrible products. So I would suggest that over time, people will recognize that regulated cannabis is where this, this industry should be transacted. And I think that will bode well for the future of the industry. But again, right now, 90% of the cannabis sales are transacted by the black market. I don't think that's a great idea. In terms of expansion plans, where do you guys go next? 
We have focused heavily on the East Coast because yeah. the population density, because they're very controlled programs that have been regulated very rationally. We'll continue to do that, even though we've moved out West through acquisition. Um, you know, there are a lot of states still on the map where we're not in, and so we have a lot of work to do for sure. We'll, we'll be in 19 states next year that you know leaves a bunch of states that we're not in, so we're going to keep going for sure. Cash burn, you guys can do this. You can keep growing and. Well, you know, I think I'm most excited about the fact that we hit an inflection point last quarter. We showed uh, adjusted positive EBITDA. Um, we're going to be generating a lot of cash flow next year. We've built the business um, through a lot of hard work over the last three years. So that's now going to be, in my opinion, the best asset in the industry. So I'm, I'm excited to be generating our own cash and not having to worry about raising money, frankly. Show of hands, time for uh, the government to make marijuana just legal all across the country. It's a lot of hands. Wait, show of hands not to do it. Okay. That's a lot of hands. We agree. All it's right. a good good trend. Biggest challenge for 2020? Execution. Just keep... No, come on. CEOs always say execution. Uh, it's boring but true. Do they not? It's execution. It is. I mean, as I said, this is a complex business. We have to cultivate, manufacture, retail, distribute a product across 19 states that can't interact with each other. That's a lot of work. Well, good luck. Thank you. All right. Have your brownies. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.